I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's been a really interesting journey because when we started in 2017, we were selling hope. We really didn't understand what it was going to be and how big it was going to be. And now you've got 600,000 women and girls playing AFL around the country. Women and girls are going back to football clubs like never before in 2022, which is just incredible. So we're tracking higher than our last pre-COVID census. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. excited to roll out a new episode of Short Black, but today I have to say, I've been wanting to interview Nicole Livingston, OAM, for many years. G'day, Nicole. Welcome to Short Black. Hello, Sandra. I think you did interview me way back in 1994 on the eve of the Commonwealth Games for Birmingham. I did. Well, that was in your elite athlete days, and I think you were performing uh, you know, for Australia at the Com Games in Victoria, Canada. And as a consequence of that, I do remember taking you out to a story and you were sitting in the car ruminating about what you're going to do, you know, post-swimming whenever your professional sporting career ended. And you said, you know, I think I want to work in media. What do you think? You know, can you give me a few tips? Lo and behold, good on you. You've done so well. Are you loving it? Yeah, look, I do love it. I love everything that I've, I've done. And in fact, this month, it's 30 years since the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games. So... It feels like it was only yesterday. And I guess part of that is because I've been around for for a really long time. You know, I started at 13 on the Australian swimming team. So I'm now 51. So, yeah, I've been kind of uh, around and about for a really long time now. Yeah, look, just quietly. There's no need to put a date stamp on things, all right, girlfriend. (laughs) Just just calm the farm. Um, I was going to say we started when we were 12. But, uh, look, you were a superstar of the Australian um, Dolphins of the swim team and you were the backstroke queen. And um, when you were getting ready to make a change, you started to do some homework. You started to prepare the landscape and got yourself ready to see what opportunities opened. Is that a fair statement of how you approach it all? Yeah, and I think now that I am a mother of teenagers, actually my 19-year-olds are about to end their teenage years, but, you know, my mother's advice rings in my ears and that was all about financial independence. My mum was a really hard worker. She, a blue-collar worker, she was a chef. She used to be the chef at Metropolitan Golf Club. So she used to work 18-hour days. She had me at 38, turning 39 worked all through my childhood and financial independence was something that she really instilled in me. You've got to be able to look after yourself no matter what happens and look after your family. So, you know, I think that everything that I've sort of planned and done throughout my life has had my mum's words ringing in my ears. So from swimmer, I started doing a little bit of broadcasting because pay TV started in Australia and swimming was, you know, one of those sports that was lucky enough to be on the tally. So I was swimming and I was doing broadcast. And then I moved across to, um, from broadcast, I started to try and signal my interest in doing things like being on sporting boards and 
you know, being involved in the administration and governance of sport and then that sort of moved to the seamless swap across to, to sports administration that I now find myself five years into working for the biggest sport in Australia and that's the AFL. I want to go back for a second to this, you know, mantra of the need for financial independence. You've told us how it's shaped a lot of the decisions you've made in your career. In terms of being a mother, how does it shape the conversations you have with your kids? I think it's about the example that I set. My mum, you know, I have fond childhood memories of being around her place of work for, you know, big international golf tournaments and seeing how hard she worked. My dad going in to sweep the floors at, you know, the end of her shift. So I've got all of those memories of mum working hard. So I think for my children, they understand that I also work and I'm a parent and my mum was a great parent. I hope I am too. So to show them that you can want for more than just one thing, I think is really important. My kids... My daughter is living in the US at the moment. Um, She's 19. She left at 18 and went across to pursue swimming and also college. So so that independence, I hope I've given her as well. She does come home for two and a half months every year for their summer break. And interestingly, she spends that time working to save money to then go back across to the US so that she's got her own independence. So I feel like she has got that message, whether or not it's been um, a blunt message or whether or not it's just been subliminal it seems as though it's working. The boys, they're probably a little more reliant on <laughs> on mum and dad. We call it mum and dad card. Yeah, that's exactly right. The bank of mum and dad. Speaking of your daughter, Ella, I believe, is a breaststroker. You were a oh. backstroker. And I'm told she's faster than you were at your best. <laughs> In breaststroke? Yes, absolutely. No, her best times are not as quick as my best times from 20 years ago. And I try not to remind her too often, but she does beat me in the pool now. We recently had a holiday together and we were swimming a kilometre every morning together and she is lapping me. So she's a very good swimmer. I'm sure in the back of her mind, she does have hopes and aspirations of being an Australian dolphin and going to the Olympic Games, but such a small amount go on to represent Australia. But the best thing for me is that at turning 20, she still loves it. I was really protective of her workload as a young girl, only because 12-year-old champions don't often make it through to you know, their late teens or early 20s in our sport. So I wanted her to still love it in her 20s, and she does. She's going to get an education. You'll be proud of her. She will be doing a BA in communications and PR. So she's swimming, but she's also going to get an education out of it. Now, you left home at 17 to go to the AIS. Ella's 19, so I guess, you know, she can learn a lot from you in terms of not wanting to rush too soon to be world-class, take your time and and find Mm. your way gently. And also have the experiences. Um, My parents weren't overjoyed with me leaving at 17 they were very very protective not to say that I'm a bad parent but I was more with both Ella and Josh because Josh went to New Jersey for for nine months to pursue baseball and now I'm really proud of his courage to do that he after nine months pulled the pin it wasn't for him he didn't enjoy the experience but I'm proud of him for trying so you know I wanted them to go off and have their experiences to find their independence know that the safety blanket of myself and Marty is always here, but you actually go out and have some experiences and it's going to stand you in really good stead for the rest of your life. And she's doing that. She's in Florida. You know, she's running. I keep saying to her, can you put some clothes on? She's running around in a bathers the whole time. Great tan, a wonderful swimming program, a wonderful school. So, and she's done that all herself, Sandra, as well. She didn't use any of my connections. She's on scholarship with the school she's at at the moment. She connected and contacted all of these people. I only kind of stuck my face in at the end of it. And they're like, oh, she's your daughter. She's got a different surname. She did a really good job finding her way and uh, negotiating, which is a wonderful skill to be able to have. 
So, Nick, most people see you and know you as the GM of AFLW, but you were a member of the Australian swim team for 12 consecutive years. You competed for Australia in three Summer Olympics, 1988, 92, 96, winning both individual and team medals. You broke the world record in the 200-metre backstroke. That was the short course in the 92 Olympics at Barcelona, and you held that record for 16 years. That's quite an achievement. Are you still pretty proud of that? Oh, yeah, I am. I mean, everybody deserves a moment in their life that everything goes according to plan. And actually, July 31, 2022, will be 30 years since that moment in Barcelona. And for me, everything did go according to plan. I had a wonderful preparation. And as a little girl, I dreamt about trying to win an Olympic medal after watching Michelle Ford win gold from the 80 Olympic Games. And to have that as a goal and a dream and to get to 1992 and have a race that was in slow motion, didn't hurt, everything felt perfect, my best time, an Australian record, and to touch the wall and see the number three after my name and know that it's an Olympic medal, I can still see it, feel it, taste it, smell it. You know, it was one race after Kieran Perkins' 1500 that stopped the nation. My race followed that up. Everybody got back on with their life. So hopefully, Google it. It's not quite in black and white, but <laughs> it's well, there somewhere. I was there poolside and I'll never forget you it. You were. Yeah, it was incredible. Just incredible. Look, there's a lot of emphasis on the Dolphins. There always is because they're world class. How would you rate the current squad? Oh, the current squad is fabulous. You know, we, again, the women always punch well above their weight. They're always, you know, the showpiece of the Australian swimming team winning uh, not only Olympic gold medals, their Tokyo performance was just outstanding. But then we've got Zach Stubbledy Cook that's just won a world championship. He's a world record holder. He's an Olympic gold medalist. Elijah Winnington, you know, God help the other nations when the Australian men and women are both firing at the same time. And it feels like they're almost there. You know, we've got yeah. some incredible women, Emma McKeon, Shana Jack, who's back on the team now. It really is a pleasure to watch. Looking at the Dolphin squad, and, and I know Kate Campbell reasonably well. Kate's going to be anything she wants to be post-swimming. Talking about a subject like transgender athletes, like she did at the FINA Congress recently, and, you, you know, many of your listeners will agree or not agree with FINA's decision, but for one athlete to be given the opportunity to articulate on behalf of the sport and the swimmers, I was just so impressed with the way that she was able to do that. What did you think of Fina's position? It's a difficult one for me to look at, and it's it's not the same, but it is on a parallel. You know, I raced against each East Germans that we now know had a systematic doping regime from the government to to actually increase testosterone levels and to make them stronger and faster and and better than than the rest of their opposition. So, yeah, I think it's a very difficult space for anybody to be able to please everybody. And I do understand that we need to be a welcoming sport and an inclusive sport, but we don't know enough right now. Uh, you know, I think research is actually key to this as well, you know, to actually have research and to continue to have research, particularly male to female transgender in a sport like swimming, which is cardiovascular and power and strength and the, the age uh, of becoming a change in your gender and how your formative years may affect your strength and, and the remainder of that strength. I just remember from the East German mm. period of time, they talked a lot about, you know, the testosterone that was introduced to the female athletes and then the legacy of that from being able to develop muscles stronger than female athletes that weren't receiving that intervention. So I, I feel like research is probably the key here, Sandra, that we need to continue as an industry of world sport to continue to 
be able to understand from a research and a medical point of view, as well as from a person and emotive point of view as well, and a wellbeing point of view. So let's go back to the start of AFLW. What made you put your hand up at the very start? I mean, you grew up in Melbourne. You're a Carlton girl like I. Yes. And the baggers are doing so well this year. Yeah. Quietly, very excited. But back in the day, what made you put your hand up? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I signalled, I, ha- I was working in sports administration, so I ran one of Australia's biggest swimming clubs, which was a high-performance centre for Swimming Australia. We had six athletes go to Rio, including Mac Horton, who won gold. And so I lived and breathed that journey for Rio and then decided in 2017 that I would just take a breath. So I resigned from that job, but I was still on five boards. I was deputy chair of VicHealth. I was the chair of the VIS on the Australian Olympic Committee board. So there was a lot that I was invested in. So I just took a breath away from the formal work side of things. And then when I was ready to go back in, I actually arranged to have a conversation with a recruiter because I wanted to see what was out there. And it was actually a Netball Australia job that I was interested in potentially putting my hand up for. And this wonderful recruiter said, actually, we've got something that's just come across our desk this morning. Are you interested? And it was the head of women's football for the AFL. And I was about to go on a family holiday. And I'm like, yeah, I'm interested, but I've got like a week. <laughs> and she said, great, they'll see you tomorrow. And I just remember, I mean, if you, if you want to work in sports administration, the AFL is the bee's knees. I mean, it is the biggest sport in Australia. They were in a process of transforming themselves. I mean, organisational change is not easy. And imagine a An organisation for 160 years was only interested in the pursuit of male sporting excellence on the Australian footy field. And suddenly they're introducing women's football. Like, what an opportunity to be involved in societal change. I want to bottle your enthusiasm for a second and just remind you of of those U-turns and roadblocks that you were confronted with. Because when it began, gosh, you had a lot of pushback. The rusted on mm. male AFL, you know, fan base just said, no, women don't belong in the sport. And, and now you've got 600,000 women and girls playing AFL around the country. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And in fact, our numbers that we track for this year, because we've been COVID affected for a couple of years, women and girls are going back to football clubs like never before in 2022, which is just incredible. So uh, we're tracking higher than our last pre-COVID census. So we're pretty excited about what's going on. But we've also been able to have some really fantastic conversations and gain investment from the AFL Commission. So recently we released the 2030 Women's Football Vision that articulates so much of where we want it to be. And then our game development department that looks after women and girls' community, they successfully bid for funding and received $5 million. And right now we're in market for uh, more resourcing around the nation specifically to look after women and girls when it comes to participating in community football. So it's just so exciting what's going on. I had a niece living in Melbourne for a couple of years and she tried her hand at AFL and she said, I was just hopeless, but I was so welcomed. She just loved playing, learning a new game and the sense of inclusion that came with that sport. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is many of our pioneers of football, you know, Deb Lee, who's now the first woman to be inducted into the Hall of Fame for the AFL, she talks about hiding the fact that she played football and loved football, jumping into bushes when people came past when she was having a kick of the footy at the park. For a long time, I used to stop and take a photo if I saw dads and daughters kicking the footy in a cul-de-sac or a dead end. Now it's just normal. If I hear a Sharon bouncing, I don't automatically assume or get surprised by being a woman, I don't assume it's going to be a guy. Uh, You know, I'm not surprised by it now. It's just everywhere. It's doing more, though, than just about 
women and girls being able to play footy. The conversations that are able to occur now about value of women in sport and also changing uh, our community football clubs. You know, I go to a lot of community football clubs and I often have men say to me, the difference in our club now that we have women's teams is palpable. You know, we are a much more respectable organisation. You know, we're not drinking alcohol and, you know, swearing and carrying on. You know, we actually think about the way that we behave and we reflect our community expectations much better now that we have women in our club. Yeah, I hear that from so many people. And the other thing I hear, you know, my husband grew up at Mooney Ponds, Essendon boy, but, you know, he's a member of about three different clubs because he loves loves the concept of AFL dominance, essentially. And um, a common refrain in our household and, and others I'm, you know, privy to is that what they love about AFLW is it's like the old days of footy. What are the key differences between the two games? Yeah, I mean, obviously the one that gets talked the most is at the moment as we build the league is the difference in the home and away. Um, We now have all 18 teams joining our competition in Season 7 this year. So the Swans are coming in. I know um, from a Sydney perspective, lots of people are excited about that. Port Adelaide are coming in. Essendon, your husband will be happy about that being out that way. So Essendon are coming in and also Hawthorne are coming in. So we've got all 18 teams now coming in. So we only have 10 home and aways at the moment and four weeks of finals as we build that. But growth can be determined in other ways. We've just recently announced a 94% pay increase for our 540 players. Sandra, that's $25 million in payments going to elite Australian footballers. And they're not men, they're women. Like that, that just blows yeah. my mind from nothing in 2016. A couple of rule differences. We have 16 on the field. Our length of quarters are slightly shorter, which actually does resonate with our fans from a family-friendly point of view that they actually don't want to be at the footy for three, four hours. They want to be able to come and get their footy fix and then leave and the kids are okay. It's free-range footy as well. You know, a lot of these community venues, the kids aren't just tied to one seat. We have a couple of other rule changes as well, like we bring our boundary throw-ins in 10 metres and we also have the lasso rule, so a last-touch rule. So those are the two main rules that aren't part of the men's game. Well, so the length of season, the men's season's about 24 rounds. How long is the women's? Yeah, so um, the men's with a split round is 23 weeks of home and away and then four weeks of finals. We're 10 weeks of home and away and four weeks of finals. We started at eight home and away, seven home and aways, uh, obviously started with eight teams, and then we've built from there. We'll continue to build. It's a negotiation. But growth, again, can be judged in different ways. We want to also build the value of AFLW, and you know we have to make those decisions. Do you spend um, more money on putting on more rounds, or can we invest in the infrastructure? Can we invest in you know, the support staff around the AFLW players to make it a really professional and swish environment that they're becoming better better athletes. Let me talk about sponsors when it comes to AFLW. Has it been easy to track them down and lock them in? It's been a really interesting journey because when we started in 2017, we were selling hope. We really didn't understand (laughs) what it was going to be and how big it was going to be. We had an inkling, but we had to go to our sponsors and say, you know, this is the right thing to do. If you are supporting men's sport, then women's sport is something that you should be supporting as well. Now we don't have to have that conversation anymore. There's a lot of conversation around why do we call it AFLW when the men's competition doesn't have the M? But I look at it and I look at our logo, which is different to the men's logo. I look at AFLW, we, we just call it W. There is a lot of equity in that brand uh, and it does stand out from the crowd. So I'm really happy with that. BHP have been incredible thinking about things differently. 
they actually support us in a multiple of ways, but one of those ways is that they assist us with funding our player development managers at all of our clubs that then work with our AFLW players to make sure that they've got great balance. They're still pursuing things outside of football like educational careers. Um, so BHP fund that. So, you know, we're really thinking out of the box with these traditional sponsorship environments as to how we can make this work differently. Yeah, and I notice these days, you know, the AFL invested a long time ago in, in ensuring that players thought about life after football. Now, clearly your relationship with someone like BHP, are you creating those career pathways as well inside mm. those big corporates? So we've just introduced a new program called Workplay, and Workplay is um, our, our own product, which is actually linking our commercial partners to the AFLW players in flexible and supportive work opportunities. So the, the difficulty for female athletes while they're also working, we should never be ashamed that they have other careers. That is remarkable that, you know, you name it, we've got that profession in AFLW, and that is incredible. You can do more than one thing. So to be able to have the next generation focusing on something more than football and not having to use things like an example, their annual leave to go off and play football for their club on a Friday. I know when I worked for Australia Post as an athlete, when I went off to do national team duties, they supported me to do that so I didn't have to use annual leave. To be able to have commercial partners recognise the value of leadership, recognise the value of what these women in AFLW are trying to achieve by having dual pathways is something that we're working very hard with our partners. I don't ever want AFLW players to be 100% full-time only doing football. That is not a holistic approach and it's not an approach that will see them in good stead post their football careers. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What I love about you, Nick, is that you're a very progressive thinker. And I guess, you know, it's not to bag the men's experience, but we've learned a lot from their mistakes. Mm. So, you know, I like the fact that you're trying to bring them on board and on the journey with you. When you look at, you know, maintaining your role as an administrator for however long you choose to pursue this path, where do you get your learnings from outside of the sport? How do you stay in front of the curve? Oh, look, there's there's a wealth of people that love Australian football and love women's football that I do turn to. And even within our own building, it might shock you to know that the AFL is now, in terms of head office and administration, 40% women. There are some incredible thinkers in here, some incredible leaders. And all of the connections that are around the woman, women's football industry is certainly something that I do tap into. But I've been really privileged to be around a lot of wonderful men and women that I know I can pick the phone up whenever I need it. Let's look at life outside of AFLW. Who's Nicole Livingston when the AFLW isn't <laughs> at play? Oh, um, 
my life is still really busy and, and I think about it, you know, I honestly think about it. I've worked hard since I was 13 or probably before that, 13 years of age. I mean, you're a hard worker as well. Sometimes I feel exhausted and, you know, people often talk about balance uh, with family and everything else and I think that's a bit of BS. It's really hard to achieve balance. you just got to sort of fill your buckets when you need to and ebb and flow with what you dive into. So me away from it, my husband's a cinematographer. He's, uh, you know, shooting some really wonderful things at the moment. The production in Australia has gone through the roof. So, you know, he's doing some amazing things as well. So he's a high achiever. I'm mum, I'm wife, I'm, I don't know, I, I hope that I'm making my family better by my contribution. I loved my mum uh, and I felt she was amazing. So that's my aspiration to be like her. She wasn't around for my kids. So I'm really passionate about women's health and making sure that we all are empowered to, to know our history and to get in on the front foot. Your mum passed away from ovarian cancer and, you know, you were the original founder of um, Ovarian Cancer Australia. Your mum left a vial of blood yeah. with the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, which tested positive for the BRCA2 gene, and both you and your sister had that gene. What was that discovery like for you? Look, it was confronting because when I got my test results back, I was pregnant with my twins. So then you start to think, and I knew I was having a boy and a girl, you start to think about, you know, your potential of passing it down the line. My mum's courage to be able to go through that and leave a vial to open it up to her whole family. She's one of six. And that opened it up to everybody in, in her family to be able to be tested. I removed my ovaries at 45, so six years ago now. So that was something from 30 when I found out that I had the BRCA gene that I had always planned for. It opened up the ability to have surveillance and healthcare around me through Peter McCallum. So a lot of people go, oh, why would you want to know? Well, for me, I want to live a long life and I want to live longer than my mum did who died at 68. So, you know, to, to take, to be empowered to take my own healthcare into my own hands and make decisions that will save my life was very important. It's a bit like the financial independence that we talked about, you know, medical and health independence for me and being able to make those choices is very empowering. We don't know that our family has much of a breast cancer history. We personally, without any medical opinion, we personally feel like our family probably has a bit more of an ovarian cancer sway in that BRCA2 gene, but I continue to have breast checks, MRIs and ultrasounds each and every year. And I'm in the care of Peter McCallum for that as well. I don't know, it felt like it was an easier decision to have my ovaries out. If I had to have both breasts off, you know, I, I would have to really steady myself for those kind of conversations and determinations. But if I needed to do it to be here to see my grandkids, then I would do it. What was it like at that age having a hysterectomy? Because of course it triggers menopause and you were well ahead of time. Yeah, it's um, instant menopause. So, you know, I just, menopause sucks, but ovarian cancer is way worse. So, yeah, to, to make the decision to have my ovaries out, you know, it wasn't even a second thought. I knew my advice was 45, have them out, and, you know, it will radically reduce the, the uh, potential for ovarian cancer. There's still microscopic tissue in there that I need to just be aware of, um, but I just didn't even second guess it. it menopause is terrible and and I actually realized the other day and I didn't know this that menopause ends I thought once I got it I was had it forever but I was reading the other day that it's you know seven to ten years and then symptoms should um, start to reduce so I'm like I'm almost there I'm almost at seven years so I've been really lucky though I mean I haven't had the hot flushes and I haven't had a lot I mean the sleep side of things is is something that I struggle with these days and I've always been a good sleeper but 
you know, I've got strategies for that as well. So career goals, I mean, you've kicked a pretty big one with the AFLW. How long do you envisage hanging around? It's, it's interesting because we now have Laura Kane, who has joined the business as general manager of competition. So she's actually responsible for delivering AFLW on the park. I love working with Laura, other strong women around the business who are just, you know, so savvy and so good at what they do. So my focus has turned very much to the bigger picture of women's football. So the Women's Football Vision 2030, we've got a, a whole host of things that we have committed to. So to actually then put the strategic plan that sits underneath that is, is what I'm focusing on now. There's still so much to do. I'm loving it. I'm still really enjoying it. You know, I think when I first interviewed with Gil, you know, he said to me, you know, you won't be here for the rest of your life, but as long as you're still enjoying it and you're making a meaningful contribution, be here for as long as you're doing that. So I still feel after five years I am. You know, then I look at the sporting sphere and we've got 2032 coming. I've been to nine Olympic Games or worked on nine Olympic Games now from athlete to broadcast. The Olympics is in my DNA. So to be involved with 2032 somehow, I could probably prove that you don't have to be a Queenslander to work on 2032. <laughs> and, you know, we've got Commonwealth Games coming to Victoria as well. So there's plenty of things around if, if I aspire to do something different. But right now, the big picture is that I feel like we are actually transforming the way people consider women in sport and also from a society point of view. And I hope that flows on to making it a safer and better place for women to be a part of. Did you ever think you would be described as a trailblazer? Because you really are. <laughs> you really are. Uh, look, it's, it's interesting. I don't, think, I don't think too much about the things that I've done in my past. And interestingly, sitting with Susie O'Neill for dinner with her husband, Cliff, who's an ophthalmologist, and Susie doesn't really talk about her swimming uh, history either. And Cliff said most athletes that he knows in Susie's world don't talk about or brag and Susie and I were like, yeah, it's not like you're restoring sight or, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, I'm in the moment of what I'm doing and I do have goals for the future and I'm just going to keep working hard because, again, back to the very start of this, that's what my mum instilled in me. You know, work hard, provide for your family, have financial independence and, yeah, somewhere in there there's happiness and there's joy. Well, I have every confidence that women in sport across Australia are in great hands with someone like Nicole Livingston at the helm of AFLW, but also what you're demonstrating and, and, and teaching the rest of us about how we need to get on board, you know, support the journey and, and realise that it isn't just in front of the camera, it isn't just on the field, that women have opportunity across the board in sport in so many different facets. So congratulations, Nicole, for everything you've achieved. We'll watch with interest from afar and um, thanks so much for spending some time with us here at Chalk Black. You're a superstar. Oh, thank you, Sandra. Absolutely my pleasure and I'll see you at the footy. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.